We're adrift in uncharted waters. An invisible monster swirls around us, and we don't know what's happening or how to escape. Next on the Public Radio Hour, we try to sort through the chaos of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We are in the middle of a giant science experiment. Stay tuned as we search for answers with Hudson Alpha's Dr. Neil Lamb and talk about the challenges of testing for the virus with Thrive Alabama's Mary Elizabeth Marr. That's going to be really difficult to do as we come back to trying to bring the state back to normalcy because we just don't have those tests. Two members of the WLRH crew, Katie Ganaway and Sarah Williamson, also share personal stories of their experiences with COVID-19 that resulted in self-quarantine and isolation. It was scary to think about the possibility that I could have given this to my mother and my grandfather, both who are in very fragile health, both who I'm like really close to. What if I'm the reason that I never get to see them again? We'll be back after this news update. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our award-winning mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brett Tannehill. Well, we are certainly in uncharted waters right now as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to upend our sense of normalcy. And one of the most disturbing things about our current healthcare challenge is we don't really understand what we're dealing with. In the next hour, we hope to provide you with some answers. Later in the show, we'll hear a conversation between WLRH producers Katie Ganaway and Sarah Williamson about their experiences in quarantine and getting tested for COVID-19. Katie tested negative, while Sarah, who never showed any symptoms, tested positive. But for the first part of the show, let's dig into the facts a bit with Thrive Alabama CEO Mary Elizabeth Marr, who talks about the challenges they face as they try to provide testing to our community. First, let's hear from Dr. Neil Lamb, the Vice President of Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Dr. Lamb says we're in a situation where we're learning as we go. We are in the middle of a giant science experiment, and I don't mean to say that to minimize the impact of what we're dealing with and that there are people who are getting sick, there are people who are dying, so I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of it. But we know so little, we still know so little about the virus that causes COVID-19. We are watching around the world scientists and clinicians trying to gather information and then disseminate that out as rapidly as possible and determine, is that data an artifact? Is that data a, a, a correlation? Is it a causation? So we are, as you said, very much watching real time as we try to get a handle on cause and, and treatment and outcomes. What are some of the challenges involved with that, with information coming from so many different places and so many different situations? How do you sort through and find uh, the credible, the good information from that? We are dealing with so much information coming at us from so many different directions. So just from a, from a research perspective, there have been something like 2,000 papers that have now gone to journals, clinical and research journals, for review on COVID-19, 2,000. No one can keep up with all of that information, but we fortunately have tools that allow people to publish a pre-review, so so a a pre-print that says, here's what I found. I want to make this available. Yes, it hasn't been reviewed. Uh, You've got the news media that's providing content and, and, and insight and perspective And then you have everyone on social media that's providing their input as well. We are drowning in information and trying to figure out which of those pieces are good scientific or clinical evidence that we can use for decision-making and which of those uh, are not. And it is a challenging process to go through and vet and to ask the right questions. And to do that, when every minute counts, when you're talking about decisions that, that change the course of, of people's lives. And as we're dealing with this flood of information, one of the big challenges, uh, at least so far anyway, is just the simple uh, testing uh, for the virus. Um, why is it taking us so long to speed up this process? And what does the testing tell us about what we need to do? So let's take the second question first. 
testing is meant to give us one of two two answers. Number one, are you actively infected with the coronavirus that causes COVID-19? Or have you been infected in the past? And the assumption being that you now have some immunity around that. And so you've got molecular tests. That's what we've been hearing about. That's the, the nose swab looking for the presence of genomic material from the virus. Those have been out for a few weeks. They are finally now beginning to ramp up in numbers that we can get sufficient uh, testing out to people um, instead of having to try to prioritize who gets tests and who doesn't get tests. And then the second type of test that says, have you had COVID at any point, even if it's not an active infection, is a serological test. These are the antibody tests that we're hearing about. And those aren't effective in the early stage of the infection. You really have to be five to seven days or more into active symptoms before your body is beginning to produce those antibodies. So serological tests won't tell you, am I in the early stage of infection? But it will tell you, have I been infected, even if I was infected and recovered weeks ago? So that's valuable for knowing who has mounted an immune response, which is critical as we think about who now potentially has some antibody protection and who do we want to think about being able to go back out into the workplace when we begin to open up society again. And then looping back to that first question, why does it take so long to to ramp up, to speed up this process? Try to think about how would I be, how would I create millions and millions of tests rapidly and get them into the hands of people that need to be doing the testing and then get them back to the companies to turn it around quickly. We did not take advantage of the time frame that we had where we saw this spread in other countries. We should have at that point been building those tests, been stockpiling those tests and put that process in place. And we frankly were caught flat-footed on that. And I think that's going to be one of the key lessons for preparedness going forward if we face something like this again. And touching again on this idea of, of the flood of information we're experiencing, um, the use of masks is one idea that's seen significant change over the past few weeks. Initially, the CDC was recommending uh, that the usefulness of the masks maybe not as important, um, and that has changed significantly now as they're recommending that everyone wear some sort of face covering while in public. So, uh, Dr. Lamb, you and Hudson Alpha are producing a series of informational videos related to the spread of COVID-19, and this is one of the topics that you've covered so far. So tell us here on the Public Radio Hour, what should we be doing with masks and face coverings? We should be wearing face coverings, and I'm going to define the difference between masks and face coverings, but we should be wearing face coverings when we go out in public in places where it is difficult for us to practice social distancing. So, for example, at the grocery store or at the pharmacy, or if you have to go into the doctor's office. Those are places where sometimes you can't be six feet apart from someone, and we should be wearing a face covering. That's really for two purposes. Yes, it provides us some protection against catching the virus from someone else, but equally importantly, it helps keep us from spreading the virus in respiratory droplets to other people. One of the unusual things about the virus that causes COVID-19 is that you may be completely unsymptomatic. You have no symptoms um, for days before you actually develop symptoms, or in some cases, people are asymptomatic the entire time they're infected, which means you can pass it along to someone else and you're not even aware that you are passing the infection. So these face coverings help protect us from sharing it unintentionally with someone else. Okay, now, the difference between a face covering and a mask. The surgical masks, the N95 masks, we should not be wearing those as members of the public. We should be reserving those for use for the people that are on the front lines, the first responders, the healthcare workers. Uh, A typical cloth face covering, and the Internet is chock full of Uh, patterns and instructions, whether you sew or whether you have no sewing talent whatsoever, those are the kinds of pieces, the face coverings that we should be wearing out in public. Another of your videos is titled, Choose Fact Over Fear, 
And I think that's especially challenging right now, considering how much information is being spread all over the place on social media and from other sources. So help us review some of the basics here. Why is the SARS-CoV-2 virus different from the flu? People say that uh, people are, get sick from the flu. Uh, what's the difference in getting sick from the flu and getting sick with COVID-19? We as a society have seen influenza viruses. Those are the viruses that cause flu year after year after year. We know how they work. We know how they're transmitted. We have vaccines for them. Many of us have some level of background immunity against them. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is completely new to humanity. No one had any background immunity against it. And it causes such a range of symptoms. And some people, they're not even symptomatic. Some people are mildly affected. And other people go into respiratory distress and um, an organ shutdown. So it is a, it's a virus that causes a disease that we are unfamiliar with. We have no treatment for it. We have no vaccine against it. And because everyone, everyone is new to this virus, it is very easy for it to jump from person to person to person. There's no herd immunity. There's no protection. So the entire population essentially is at risk. And that speaks to why we're taking such extraordinary measures to stop the spread of this. Yes. We are seeing unprecedented recommendations around social distancing and staying at home and, and, and really shutting down non-essential activities because the modeling that's been crafted based on what we do know about the virus suggests that there could be hundreds of thousands of individuals that could lose their life if we don't take these kinds of extraordinary measures to try to slow the spread to flatten the curve. And a moment ago, you mentioned the term herd immunity. I've seen a number of social media posts criticizing decisions to shut down businesses and schools, saying that by doing so, we are preventing herd immunity from taking effect. So if you could just uh, define herd immunity for us and tell us how that idea plays into our current situation with the coronavirus. Herd immunity is the idea that over time, enough people either are exposed to the virus or are vaccinated against the virus that you have increased the percentage of people in your population that are now protected, that, that have either, like I said, had the virus and developed an immunity to it or were vaccinated against it. And that works well for things like measles because it acknowledges that there are certain people in the population that can't get, for example, the measles vaccine. Uh, pregnant women, people that have, a, um, that have a compromised immune system. And so protecting them from developing measles uh, is possible because the majority of the population has been protected either by having measles or being vaccinated. The concept of herd immunity is it makes it difficult for the virus to find someone to spread to because you've got a significant percent of the population that is that is protected. The challenge with trying to think about herd immunity in this population is that the percentage of the population that would need to be exposed to the virus, because we don't have a vaccine, so our only choice is people being exposed. In order to get to those percentages of people, you have to have an enormous number of people that are now exposed, which means an enormous number of people um, would ultimately develop severe symptoms. Now, granted, only a fraction of the people that are infected with the virus develop severe symptoms. But if you're going to ask all of those people to become infected simultaneously at once, you will overwhelm your healthcare system because you're going to have a huge number of people, like you've seen in Italy, that need to be in the hospital, need serious care, and there's not enough care for them. So the idea of herd immunity broadly makes sense, especially if we've got a vaccine that we can rapidly vaccinate people. But the idea of letting the coronavirus run its course through the population in order to get us to herd immunity is what leads to these enormous peaks, these enormous graphs that we've seen that would overwhelm the system. I think one of the things, to me anyway, that is so interesting about this situation is that 
people are perhaps um, in a different way having to consider other people uh, as opposed to just whether uh, this makes me sick or this is dangerous to me. People are really having to uh, consider beyond that and, and think about it's not just about me. I'm protecting myself, but I'm also protecting my neighbor, my family members, healthcare workers. That's exactly right. We are making decisions for our entire community, uh, and and that requires a different level of thinking. And, and I get it. It requires a, it requires some pain. We we have individuals in our community that are that have lost their jobs or are potentially losing their jobs. We have completely upended our way of society for the good of our entire community. Um, that's a really challenging concept to put our head around. And when we see the impacts of what we're doing, when we see the impacts of social distancing and the numbers for the models dropping, we see, people, we see, we see models saying that now there's a much smaller number of people that are projected to need to be hospitalized at this moment or that are projected to die. That doesn't mean the models are wrong and we shouldn't have been doing this. Those numbers have dropped because we collectively have taken this action. We are saving lives in the midst of making these very painful decisions. At what point do we begin to reopen businesses and get back to whatever the new normal might look like? How, how do we know when we get there? Yeah. That's an excellent question, and, and I, I don't have the answer to that. I think people right now are grappling to try to figure out what are the conditions that would allow us to, to begin to tiptoe back towards reopening things. Uh, part of that, I know, is going to depend on the ability to provide widespread testing, whether that's the molecular testing to say, are you actively infected, or the serological testing to say, do you now have some level of immunity? We also have to understand more about the way this virus works and does being infected give you long-term immunity or could you be reinfected? So there are a whole set of public health and personal health issues that we have to weigh against um, the economic impacts as well. And finally, Dr. Lamb, what do you think is the most important thing for people to remember as we continue to address this healthcare challenge? I think it's really important for your listeners to recognize, number one, that they are making a difference, that the actions that they take today shape what our community looks like in two or three weeks, and to applaud them for being willing to, to practice social distancing, to curtail their, their travels. They are saving the lives of people around them, and then to be patient. It's really difficult we are, many of us are already feel cabin fever and are frustrated that we can't get back to the things that we are used to doing. Um, and we bristle at suggestions that we're going to be doing this for, for several more weeks. We do not like the uncertainty of the unknown. I would just say, stay the course. Patience is really challenging, especially in the middle of uncertainty. Resist the temptation to throw a party and gather all your friends together. Uh, keep wearing masks when you're out in public. Uh, we, will, we will defeat this. We will not be doing this for the rest of our lives. But we aren't ready to jump back into normalcy yet. Dr. Neil Lamb with the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Thanks for joining us here on 89.3 Huntsville on the Public Radio Hour. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to hear that interview with Dr. Neil Lamb again, just check out the podcast of tonight's Public Radio Hour on the WLRH Facebook page, on the WLRH mobile app, and at WLRH.org. Just look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour. On tonight's episode, we're talking about the spread of COVID-19 in our community and trying to provide some insight on the testing process. Katie Ganaway and Sarah Williamson will be sharing their personal experiences with the testing process later in the show. Another person who's had some up-close testing experience is Mary Elizabeth Marr, the CEO of Thrive Alabama. Pre-pandemic, Thrive Alabama's main mission was to provide health care to our underserved population. 
Marr says more recently, Thrive is teaming with Huntsville Hospital and others to provide drive-through COVID testing sites across North Alabama, and those efforts have now expanded to a new phase. As a matter of fact, this week we have been in the homeless uh, community of Huntsville, which is, is taking on some really interesting work trying to provide education, trying to talk to people about self-distancing themselves when, you know, you might have two or three people in a tent. And that doesn't make good use of, of our social distancing practices. Then it's going to be interesting. We, we're testing this week, and then next week we'll need to go follow up and find those individuals and then give them their test results. So this has been, like I said, a very interesting week. Um, very, very rewarding week, though, too, because we're also providing some uh, dry socks. It's been very wet out there, trying to, to give out some homeless packs. And then also, like I said, trying to provide the education. It's been a, a very memorable week, I think, for Thrive Alabama. And we are seeing reports that uh, COVID-19 is affecting people who are underserved in terms of health care and other, other things uh, more than perhaps other segments of the population. What have you seen in this first week uh, working with Huntsville's homeless population? We, that's exactly what we've seen. We have not gotten the test results back, but we are seeing people that, that do have some signs and symptoms. And so they're being helped in other areas, actually going to the flu clinic that Huntsville Hospital is running on, on Governor's Drive. If they are our patients, if they're currently our patients, we can see them in our in our clinic as well. But um, for the most part, they're being treated systematically. Acute illness is being taken care of, and then we hope, like I said, that we'll be able to find them again so that we can give them that test result and make sure then that they do self-distance themselves and they're not they're not hanging out with all their friends. And Thrive Alabama and Huntsville Hospital also teamed up uh, for the drive-through testing that they did at uh, John Hunt Park as well. I think that process has been uh, kind of temporarily shelved for the moment, but tell us a little bit about the drive-through testing. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you saw and discovered early on as the testing efforts were ramping up, and, and how did you address those? We tried really hard to, again, not test people that we're trying to get what we call peace of mind testing because that's not appropriate. Again, we were looking for people who were showing signs and symptoms, possibly had a fever, had a cough, extreme headaches, um, even a sore throat. But what, you know, I think a lot of people in those early, early days wanted to do was they just wanted to go get that peace of mind testing. And that's not appropriate because, again, if you weren't, if you didn't have the signs and symptoms, you probably were not going to show positive. What we were trying to get people to do, which Huntsville did very, very well, was really just, let's stay home. Let's try to work from home. I think in, in the drive-through testing that we did at John Hunt Park, that population really understood it and were really just trying to come and either get some testing done where they showed signs and symptoms or, or understood that they really just needed to stay away from individuals. And we did a good job in Huntsville. We didn't see the hundreds and hundreds of people coming through our testing site, which just was, was very chaotic in other places. We really wanted to do more testing and haven't thrown that thought out but again, we had trouble, you know, actually getting the test. And I definitely wanted to ask you about that because the, the testing resources were something that a lot of places struggled to find. How has that changed uh, over the past couple of weeks? Are there enough tests to go around and are the tests reliable and providing information that's useful? The testing is reliable and it is not available. What we get, we use. And as we use it, we send it off, and the tests have come back reliable. We haven't had problems. Tuscaloosa had a lot of issues that they were doing the oral test, and they really needed to be doing the nasal test. And 400 tests were actually just dumped, because, um, which is really sad early on, 
we could have used those 400 tests here in Huntsville. But no, the tests still are not available. I'm extremely frustrated that the federal government has not, um, or if they, if they have, we haven't seen the actual test swabs getting to, to our testing site, um, have not, you know, uh, gotten with a company to just start mass producing the actual test kits. I think we can find places to run the test. It's getting those test kits that have been the big problem. And it's not like you can just put a, a Q-tip up the, up the nose. It has to be, you know, it has to be the actual test. And that's been the big frustration on our part. Why aren't there enough tests? It seems like this should have been something pretty easy to overcome. Well, if New York can't get it done, we can't get it done. It's, it should, you would think, that this would have been an easy fix. I feel like some factory somewhere here in the United States should have been tasked with trying to get those test kits out, and we still need them. We still... You know, in order for us to get back to work, the um, standard of care is for you to have the segregating yourself for two weeks. If you've been come in contact with the virus, segregate yourself for two weeks and then have two negative test results. Well, you know, that's going to be really difficult to do as we come back to trying to bring, bring the state back to normalcy because we just don't have those tests. And before we turn the mics on, you and I were talking about the next phase of testing, which would be this, this antibodies test. Talk to us a little bit about uh, why that's important and why we need to get that going as soon as possible. It needs to get done as soon as possible. I'm hearing things just like everyone else on the news that those tests are coming out. I am hoping uh, against hope that, you know, we will actually get them here in Alabama. Our... Um, Unfortunately, we, we tend to get things late. I don't know why that is. I, I wish I had an answer for it. Um, it's important for people to know whether they've got the antibodies to be able to, if they come in contact with the virus again, that they are actually um, showing some immunity to this virus. This virus seems to be a little bit different than other viruses like the flu that come, we, we see every year, you know, you have to kind of guess what's going to be the strain for the next year in order to make those, um, to make the flu shot. What we're trying to do is actually not we, uh, Thrive Alabama, but what they're trying to do in the lab is isolate this virus and then find a test to actually show whether someone has those antibodies, that their body has built up a immune response to this virus. If we know that, then you know that you will, you will hopefully not get this virus again. And that's what's so important about then finding a vaccine to fight the virus. You, you almost have to know what virus you're looking at before you can you can um, find a vaccine that will work. I, I think that makes sense in a really layman's point of view. This has been very, very frustrating. For those of us who have fought for years and years in the HIV world, HIV is a virus that changes constantly, and that's why we don't have, we have medications, but they don't always necessarily work. We also have, um, we do have a test that we can test for the virus, but that took years and years to develop. People like Dr. Fauci on the federal level are, are really trying to work very hard. People that work with him are trying to work hard to get this on a very expedited um, path so that we can get this virus that seems to be much more easily caught, finding that, that ability to know what the virus is and then find and then develop a vaccine to get this virus under control. Let's just hope that this all happens very quickly. This has been a very frustrating thing, I think, for most medical people. We kind of know what's going on, but we don't have good vaccine other than just staying home and working through the virus. You don't really have a lot 
to help combat this. And this is all like one of the worst case scenarios and something which um, I don't think we've seen for many, many, many years. And now we're, we're seeing this in our own country. I think the most important thing that people need to really think about is protecting themselves, that the six feet really is important. It is a very airborne virus, which is different than some other viruses. People really do need to self-distance. They need to wash their hands. They need to wear masks and, um, and, and not come back into public too quickly until we really have a handle on, on getting rid of this virus out of our community. We've been talking with Mary Elizabeth Marr, the CEO of Thrive Alabama, here on the Public Radio Hour. Mary Elizabeth, thanks so much. Thank you very much, and uh, everybody stay safe, and we'll, we'll all fight this together. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 WLRH. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. Don't forget you can also find this episode as a podcast at WLRH.org and on the WLRH mobile app. So far, we've learned more about COVID-19 testing, herd immunity, and other insights related to our current health care challenge. To close out the show, we'll hear from WLRH producers Sarah Williamson and Katie Ganaway, who both recently had their own brushes with COVID-19 and both went through the testing process with differing results. For me, my roommates had started displaying symptoms and then they found out that one of their moms had COVID-19. She had been diagnosed. And so since we had been around each other and I had actually drank after one of my roommates, I was like, oh, well, maybe I should go. And I didn't have any symptoms. And I kind of thought, well, I won't. And they were like, yeah, if we test positive, then you're just basically guaranteed to be positive or, or negative for that matter, one way or the other. And I almost didn't go. And then the morning of, I was like, well, maybe I will. And I I didn't really know at the time that we were trying to preserve tests for those who really need it. Mm-hmm. But I ended up being really glad that I went because I did test positive. And, so. and that is kind of something that we've talked about before, which is that sort of language around, you know, let's save these tests for the people who really need it. That's kind of scary to think about because so many people are currently asymptomatic mm-hmm. and are carriers right. of the virus. So when you went and got the test, what was it like? Oh, I could ask you the same thing, you know. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, did when you got tested, did they do mm-hmm. the whole, like, the whole rigmarole? Like, they, did they take your vitals? For me, they did blood work. Like, they did the x-rays. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the full nine yards. Mm-hmm. Um, what, so what was yours like? You and I are opposites in this because I totally felt all the symptoms of COVID-19. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was kind of strange because I called my doctor. She said, I'm going to have you go to the lab and order some tests and kind of rule out, you know, pneumonia or bronchitis right. things first. And I said, okay. So, you know, went and got those tests done, which was taking blood, chest x-ray, mm-hmm. uh, two swabs up the nose, you know, testing for all the things. Um, flu, of course, is one of them. Not to be confused, flu is not COVID-19. COVID-19 is not the flu. It's Oh, yeah, they just know. they do a nose swab for both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My doctor called me back and told me it was bacterial, but mm-hmm. she was still concerned um, because I was still having a cough and she wanted me to go get tested. Mm-hmm. At that time, it what the fever and flu clinic from Huntsville Hospital was not even a thing. Yeah, uh, the drive-through wasn't opening just yet, mm. so I had to wait until the next Monday to get mm. the test. Um, okay. And when I went, it was I went to the drive-through. Those are s- separate uh, occurrences too, because you went right. to a Quick Care. Yeah, the Quick Care Clinic, um, which is across from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And you went in with your roommates, and Mm -hmm. they sort of ushered you back into the back. What was that about? Yeah, so we called ahead, and we're like, hey, can we come and get tested? My roommates did. And they said, we have the symptoms, and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so they said, yes, you can come and get tested. Uh, Call us when you're in the parking lot. Do not come in. Just call us. We'll come out and get you. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. They came out to the car. Basically, they... 
ushered us in. They took us to the back, and they put us all in one room together, um, but kept us away from everybody else in the building. And they, then they did all of the vitals and the blood work and stuff like that. So for me, it was different because I I was lucky enough to have my dad come pick me up. He mm, took me to yeah. go to the drive through clinic over at John Hunt Park. And I had a mask and gloves on. Uh-huh. And that day, I actually had gotten back a couple of those symptoms. Um, and, you know, I do have bad allergies, but this was back to the shortness of breath, the coughing, right. the sore throat, all that. Um, so they give you a form to fill out. You give them your information so they can contact you with your results. Mm-hmm. You check off what symptoms you're feeling and you hand it back to them. Right. And then you pull ahead. They give you an f- informational flyer about you know, getting your test results back and all. And then they have you pull through one of two big white tents. And in the middle, there's this huge table with all this different PPE and testing supplies, um, tons of medical workers walking around and, you know, they're suited up in PPE. Right. And someone comes to your car and says, okay, which one of you? (laughs) Which one is it? Which one? Who's the perpetrator? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not so menacing as that. (laughs) Um, It would have been more fun. It was a very nice lady. Okay. (laughs) She she came over to my side. She had me roll down the window halfway. Mm -hmm. They didn't want it rolled down all the way. And she had a Big old swab, and she has me uh, tilt my head all the way back, mm-hmm. and she sticks it all the way back Ugh. into my nasal cavity. Ugh. And and like you said, we were talking about this the other day. She has to swab it around mm-hmm. a little bit. Can't just like one and done. But that was it. It was pretty easy, mm-hmm. uncomfortable, but easy. Uh, I was able to just drive off. And for me, it took about five days to get my results back. They That's call a me long back. time. Yeah. Now, uh, if you go get tested, it only takes maybe a maximum of two days. And for you, that was about the case, right? Right, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I only had to wait two days. I was distracted most of the time with like whatever I needed to distract myself with. But Mm -hmm. at some point during that five days, I'm sure you kind of had to sit with it and think about that uncertainty. Like, what's going to happen after this? How did you feel? Even before then, I had to stay at home. I wasn't able to go into work, obviously, because we're so short staffed. Right. And um, I had to sort of give my job over to somebody else who had the capability to get on the air Mm -hmm. from home. Like, I'm not a control freak. (laughs) But that was your baby. But yeah, that it's my thing. It's it's what I do day to day. And you're responsible for it. Yeah. So it was a very it was kind of like a loss. Mm -hmm. It felt like a loss. Um, I knew it was temporary, but I didn't know how long it would be temporary. I didn't know how long I would be waiting at home to come back here. But in that time, I had a lot of low points. Mm. I, I deal with depression on a daily basis. Some days are better than other days, but especially, you know, going from being able to go out to straight to ale or somewhere else, you know, locally to see a comedy show mm-hmm. after work, that all of a sudden vanished. Yeah. And I was really worried that I had tested positive. Right, because you had all the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't really worried because I didn't have any symptoms and I was like, right. I probably don't have it. But then you got your test results back and you were positive. <laughs> I was. You tested positive at that time. I did. Yeah, I I got the call. I was with my roommate. I got the call, and they were like, you did test positive for COVID-19. And I was like, all right, well, Mm -hmm. I mean, that probably means that my roommates definitely have it, too. And then they got the call right after I did. And neither of them were positive. They were both negative. What? Yeah. So I didn't know that. That's Oh, really? Wow. I I didn't. I didn't realize I hadn't told you that. Yeah, yeah, they didn't. I didn't get it from my roommates. I don't really know where I got it from. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had been to Scotland recently. Mm-hmm. So, but that was back in January. Right. Of course, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people are in, were infected and they just didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we really only kind of can keep track of the spread based on who's displaying symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. That, that was kind of weird. So that prolonged your quarantine, it did. obviously. So how did you pass the time? The state called me and they were like, they just asked questions like, who have you been in contact with? And I learned that I was supposed to be expecting an official quarantine letter from the state. Mm-hmm. So I had not got the quarantine letter yet. And that was a little hard. But I would like sit in front of my window and have it open all mm-hmm. the way. And like with Get my- that fresh air in. Right. You got to. 
Yeah, I'd sit there with my cat and just like do nothing. I wouldn't be on my phone. I wouldn't. I would just like do what my cat was doing. Just mm-hmm. watch the outdoors and mm-hmm. experience it. And that's what I did. I I drew and I did mm-hmm. other things. I mm-hmm. cooked things. We made dump cake. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> we just did a hodgepodge of things. When you got that positive result, mm-hmm. you were talking to me earlier about how you experienced some weirdness with your friends. Can oh. you can you go through that? Sure. If you feel comfortable. Yeah, that's fine. I don't know. There's like a quite a bit of weirdness, like some with friends and some just kind of on my own. I think most of it has to do with me processing it. So for starters, like I was supposed to write a one minute spot about getting diagnosed mm-hmm. and I put it off for like a day or so and I didn't realize I didn't know why. And then I thought, okay, I just need to do this. So I did it and I sat down and I immediately started crying Mm -hmm. because I was actually processing those feelings and realizing that it was scary to think about the possibility that I could have given this to my mother and my grandfather, both who are in very fragile health, both who I'm like really close to. And um, suddenly the thought occurred to me like, what if I'm the reason that I never get to see them again? So there was that. There was also this kind of feeling of walking around with like an invisible triple six on my forehead. Mm. But yeah, like every time that I stepped outside, I just felt like I, you know, like nobody come near me. I'm like this secret Mm. sort of agent of death. It just it just felt weird in general to like have it so good compared to so many other people, like being able to stay home and still work, still do stuff to contribute towards my job and you know, having a place of my own to stay in, not being around, you know, unhealthy family dynamic, things like that. There is, at the end of that time, at the end of the 14-day quarantine period, I um, went to go get tested, and I tested negative, and then I had to get tested again. And that's a unique situation um, to have to get tested two more times. Right, because it's not possible to get a false positive. Mm -hmm. With COVID-19, um, it is possible to get a false negative. Mm. So mm-hmm. they had to just make sure that I definitely did not have it so that I could be cleared to go back to work. As in, come back here mm. um, to work at the station. So that's what I needed to do. And the day of my roommate's car broke down, she was going to take me. And the other roommate was at his job. And, and your and, mode of transportation is a bike. Right. So that's <laughs> difficult. Yeah. I do not have a car. Right. So, yeah, I I was kind of like, well, what do I do? And I started messaging some of my friends, you know, saying, hey, do you think you can give me a ride? Like, I tested negative already. I think I'm fine. I don't have any symptoms. I'm not going to cough on you. I'm not going to sneeze. I can can still wear a mask and gloves and whatever. Um, And some friends messaged back almost immediately. were like, yes, what time? What time do you need me to take you? And other friends would message back and be like, um, I mean, I would love to, but I just don't think that's a good idea for me and mine. And so I fully understand why some people would be like, no, 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 I'm not helping you. Sorry, but like I have family to think of. Like I get that. It frankly just kind of hurt my feelings. Yeah, this is this is something brand new that we're all trying to understand and navigate as new right. information comes down from CDC. And right, literally us, every day. Yeah. We were talking about this yesterday. When I was going to get that test done mm-hmm. for COVID-19, I came out of my apartment, came down the stairs, and I turned the corner. There are two girls on one side of the parking lot. Yeah. Um, I you wasn't had even mask walking and gloves on, right? Yeah, I had mask and gloves on. I wasn't even walking toward them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I looked kind of scary because it was new. <laughs> yeah. And everybody didn't really know a whole lot as much as they know now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they looked at me and they stopped talking and they went, oh, hell no, and started talking about me in front of my face as I was getting into my dad's car mm-hmm. and saying like, yeah. it really hurt. I understood where they were coming from. Right. I understood the fear. But they didn't know me. They didn't know yeah. whether I had it or not. It was not as normalized then to wear mask and gloves everywhere. Right. And it's like, you know, you're you're the pariah mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're wearing mask and gloves. Um, so yeah, we we've kind of experienced that sort of stigma around this. You're back at work, clearly. Um, oh. Yesterday was your first first day back at work. How did you feel coming back? Like, what what did you notice that was different when you came in your first day back to work? 
Well, being on a bicycle, I always notice if it's a holiday mm-hmm. because, like, I, I notice when there's more traffic. I know when the traffic times are. And if there is no traffic on the UH campus especially, I'm like, oh, it must be a holiday. Mm-hmm. And it always is. Um, and so I came back yesterday and, like, the roads were empty. And I was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's supposed to be a holiday or like I'm not supposed to be here. But I mean, it was really nice to be out. Like I got here and I was grinning from ear to ear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was kind of weirding everybody out. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just so happy to be at work. <laughs> you know, that was pretty much it. I've never been so happy to go to work. I was able to come in a little earlier. Right. What was you? What was it like when you came back? Yeah. So it was the same feeling. It mm-hmm. was like. I don't have to wake up and do nothing every single day now. (laughs) I mean, I didn't do nothing. I I would watch the daily briefings for Huntsville Mm -hmm. and, you know, write newscast items for Nate to read on the air. But, um, you know, other than that, like, hour window of my day, I was, like, watching TV. I was reading. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, exercising along with JQ on YouTube. She has YouTube videos for that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I was doing the quarantine stories, the mm-hmm. one at a right. time stories. So from going from stagnation almost mm-hmm. to actually getting back into what I was doing before, you know, that was great. The only downside I'm going to say is it smelled like pool chemicals in here. Oh. And it still kind of smells like pool chemicals in here because we had to get fogged. Um, oh, right. I mean, I do feel like there is a lot more to be done now. Mm-hmm. Um trying to keep everybody informed on what's going on right. in Madison County and beyond our, our for all our listeners. But I'm just happy to be doing something that feels like I'm contributing more to well, my good. community than yeah. that. Do you feel the same way? When I got back on the air, I was kind of wondering if I like could keep my composure, if I would like go back to being nervous or if I would just be super excited Mostly like the little mediocre things that you do just kind of as part of your work routine. Still like this feeling of newness and yet odd familiarity. I, I should mention I tested negative. I don't you think did. I even mentioned that. Oh my that. gosh. I'm such a bad friend for not even no, asking. It's okay. The only thing that I will say that I thought about when I got that negative test result is I thought the spike is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hospitals are going to be inundated with patients, right. you know, when that time comes, which is actually going to be here soon. Mm. Um, I heard today, April 23rd is the projected date that wow. um, hospitals around here are going to see a lot more patients with COVID-19. So I, I was thinking, well, yes, I tested negative. Yes, I get to go back to work faster than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. But I'm not, you know, going to have an immunity to this virus. I, and if I get it, you know, I'm going to be in, oh. in that pool of, I could be in that pool of patients right. who have to wade through to get, you know, treatment from the, the people at the ER. Right. Um, so that kind of scared me a little bit to think about, but. That's still scary. Yeah. yeah. But I try to think like, okay, my day is I go to work, I come home. I go to work, I come home. So I'm, or maybe I go to the grocery store like once in a blue moon. You rebel. I know. It's (laughs) like a vacation. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's all of our vacation. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I try not to think about it. I try to do my best to, you know, sanitize my desk, sanitize whatever I've touched, which I will sanitize Mm -hmm. this mic and keyboard and everything we're using to record right now. Wear masks and gloves out in public. Stay six feet apart, which we totally are. I'd high five you, but we're six feet apart. I can't reach you. It's an uh. air high five you can't hear. Uh. Uh. That uh. is the sound of an air high five. Yeah. Okay. Do you do you wonder if like you'll eventually get it, or are you just like you know how people are like, oh well, we're all eventually gonna get it. Do you feel like? Do you agree with that? Do you think? And if so, what do you think is gonna happen, or do you think you won't? Well, it's unpredictable as to who's going to get it. But I mean, I have heard that too, where it's like, Mm -hmm. if if not you, then somebody you know is going to get it. And it is very possible that somebody you know will die from it. Yeah. And I know a few people who are very susceptible to contracting something like this. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, most of them are at home 
but some of them can't stay home because they have to work. Yeah. Um, so that's scary to think about too, but you have to find ways to entertain yourself so that you can take your mind off of things. Right. And I mean, some for some people, it might be Tiger King on Netflix. Some people, it might be reading a good book, you know, mm-hmm. whoever it may be. Some people, it might be drawing, you yeah. know, making art. Creating is something that I think is really important during mm. this time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like pacing yourself through the gloom and doom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it, and it's not necessarily, you know, you're ignoring what's happening in the world. It's that you're taking the time for yourself to. It's self-care. It's yes. important. Yes. I hope that we get to a day where people can say, I would like a test. And then they say, okay, come in. We'll make you an appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I would like to see mm-hmm. is that, you know, fear of the unknown being sort of reduced to nothing. Right. Through physical action. Mm-hmm. I I wonder, and I feel like this could be a whole another discussion, but I really wonder what this is going to do psychologically. Yeah. And emotionally, definitely. like how we're going to look on the other side of it, how we're going to compare to the generation that came before us that lived through like the Great Depression and Spanish flu, things like that. Um, because, I mean, we they're also an iconic generation. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that like makes us on par with them I don't I hope that would be great right right right. but um yeah I don't know to me it feels like I'm already allowed to go back to work Mm -hmm. which is awesome Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very thankful for that but for other people who are staying home I wonder for those sorts of people or anybody if when they come out of this psychologically if they're gonna feel like this feels dirty this feels dangerous to you know try and go somewhere that's not the grocery store (laughs) i wonder if we're turning ourselves into hermits like are we going to feel are we going to feel guilty if we you know at first trying to like yeah for like simple daily things Mm -hmm. that we didn't go get our hair done or something just anything that we were doing before like is it gonna feel yeah wrong i only have one thought about that because i i wonder about that too Mm -hmm. and i hope people don't feel guilty just from a we all benefit if we all go and spend money Mm -hmm. you know like if you're feeling guilty about going and getting your hair done go and get your hair done and tip your stylist Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um if you're not sure if you want to go on a date go ahead and go on a date and get that babysitter for your kids Mm -hmm. like i like to think that there's always you know where there's a vacuum it will be filled with something so if you're creating a vacuum in your wallet Something is going to fill it. That money is going to come back to you, especially if we're like all taking care of each other, so to speak, by investing in each other. After this happens, I, I feel like it's really important that we're not really afraid. Thanks to Katie Ganaway and Sarah Williamson for their willingness to share their personal stories. Also, thanks to the insight provided earlier in the show from Thrive Alabama's Mary Elizabeth Marr and Hudson Alpha's Dr. Neil Lamb. If you'd like to hear any part of this episode again, no problem. Find it as a podcast at WLRH.org and on the WLRH mobile app and on the WLRH Facebook page. And also, don't forget, we've built some great COVID-19 resource pages at WLRH.org that are chock full of the latest info and statistics, educational materials for students, and ways you can help out in our community. We hope all of you are practicing good safety precautions and staying healthy and happy. We wouldn't want it any other way. I'm Brett Tannehill. Thanks for listening.